Before we get started, one announcement that got missed is our uh, prayer meeting, our Sunday night prayer meeting is also resuming today, so we want to make sure that, uh, that uh, everybody's aware of that so you don't miss it. Um, it is one of the most important times for a church body. Uh, I want to apologize for my voice. The uh, changes in weather have affected me a little bit here, so I will do my best and trust that the Lord will make it work. All right. Uh, today we are going to be resuming our In the Wilderness series. We're going back to the book of Numbers uh, after our little uh, break to walk through the Advent season. And as we come back to this, we're at a, a new section, a new phase. So you might call it In the Wilderness Phase 2. Uh, the people have done what they would should not have done in uh, rebelling against God, despising God uh, as, as the Lord describes it by not trusting his promises. And so as they came to the promised land, after God had done everything to prepare them, he put them in position so that everything in their lives was ordered around him and his presence, uh, they decided to trust their own feelings and understanding instead of trusting the Lord. So when they get to the promised land, they look and they say, wow, God's promises are amazing. He's got these wonderful things in store for us, just as he promised, and yet they reject it. Why do they reject it? Because they see giants in the land. They see these uh, tribal armies uh, from the nations that are residing there. And even though God had already delivered them from the mightiest nation uh, known to man at the time, uh, as they escaped Egypt... They looked and they saw, oh, these people are too big for us. And by extension, they are saying, these people are too big for God. Because it was never about them and their ability in the first place. Something that we should remember today. So God says, all right, uh, you want to go back to Egypt? Fine. You're going to spend 40 years wandering around that wilderness that I just brought you through but I will still keep my promises. So that's where we find ourselves today, uh, picking up in Numbers chapter 15. So I'd invite you to turn there. And in Numbers, did I say 13 or 15? It's 15. Don't listen to me. I'm just the preacher. So, you know, Numbers 15 is where we are. Uh, <clears throat> and as we, uh, as we get to Numbers 15, uh, we've already gone through 13 and 14. And uh, the last thing that has happened here as we get up to this section is the people having uh, received God's judgment where God says, okay, you're going to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. You're, you personally are not going to come in. I will bring my people in to the promised land and give you the inheritance that I had, had promised to your forefathers but not you folks because of your rebellion. So your children will inherit it. You will die in the desert and, you, and your children will come in and I will do for them what I had promised to do for my people. Wow. Um, so sometimes the automatic blinds can be a little loud. Uh, <clears throat> so now... As, they had, uh, as God had told them that, they received that judgment, they said, oh, wow, we sinned against God. So we're going to go ahead and go into the land. And Moses said, uh, but you're rebelling against God again because he said, go this direction into the wilderness, and you decided you're going to go in. And they said, uh, no, never mind. We're going to do it anyway. 
Sometimes there are distractions during a sermon. We're going to do it anyway. We're going to go into the land. So they start to go in and they are thrashed by the enemy. Why? Because God did not go with them, which has always been the point. It was never about the promise of the land. It was about the relationship with the Lord, which then involved the promise of the land. It was the covenant that mattered. The covenant relationship led to the covenant promises. So after all that, that's kind of the break in the story. And now we shift gears in chapter 15. I'm going to read uh, this entire chapter um, because if I don't, I'm, I'm quite certain that our natural tendency will be to blow it off. Why? Because we're coming to a place where God is, is stating laws again. Okay. Uh, we're going to need to stop and pray before we even get reading because I feel like everything is a distraction here this morning uh, from noises and crashes to uh, music stands right behind me. So uh, let's stop for just a moment. And before we do anything else, including reading the text, let's turn our attention upward. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the privilege of being your people. We thank you for the privilege of having received your word. We know that in ourselves, Father, we are incapable of acting in a way that could ever earn us a relationship with you. We recognize that we are not even capable of keeping the commands that you have, the, the simple, easy, light commands that you've given to us. We, we don't keep them, let alone the very detailed, minuscule aspects of the Old Testament law. And so, Father, we're so thankful for your compassion and your mercy. And right now, Father, I, I know that as we are preparing to open your word, the enemy hates you. Therefore, he hates your people. And he wants to deceive and distract and discourage us. And so, Lord, even now, through all of the mundane things that can easily distract our minds, the enemy works. We ask that you would give us a focus beyond that. And Father, even though we know that your scripture, your word that you've given to us is clear, and you have made yourself plain to us, we know that the enemy works to deceive our minds. Even turning your comforting assurances into things that plague us and cause us to have doubts. And so, Father, we ask that you would guide us, give us the wherewithal to be able to capture our thoughts, that we might cling to your truth and trust who you are and fully lean into you and not into our own understanding. Lord, keep us from the deceit of the evil one. And, Father, we also recognize that in our struggles, the closer we get to you, the harder the enemy works to discourage us. And so right now, I have no doubt in my mind that there are those hearing my voice who feel unworthy of what you've called them to, who feel like they can't deserve a relationship with you. And Lord, Help us to remember that 
we can't. We never could. And yet you choose us anyway. As we open your word today, Lord, help us to hear only your voice, not mine and certainly not the enemy's. Protect us, Lord, against anything or anyone that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you. Grant me a focus today, Lord, that I might be able to speak your word faithfully despite my struggles physically today, despite my mental limitations. May your people hear your word guided by your spirit for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So without further ado, let's uh, read from Numbers chapter 15. I will be reading from the New International Version 1984 edition, affectionately referred to as Heaven's Preferred Translation. And as, as we do this, I just want to draw your attention to, to a couple of things you want to notice, that you want to listen for. Always, whenever we're reading God's text, keep your eyes open for repetitions and patterns. When we see something repeated, there's a point being made. When we're, when we're going through a text, sometimes we see words that are, are told us over and over again or phrases or um, constructions that uh, are, are easy for us to, to kind of blow off and, and move past. But I want you to pay attention to a couple of things in particular. There are, are three main divisions here in this text as we read it. You'll, you'll see this as we go. And they begin with, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses. Pay attention to that. When you hear the, the phrase repeated, and you'll hear it several times, an aroma pre- pleasing to the Lord, take note of that. Pay attention to it. There's another phrase you'll hear in here several times throughout the generations. So listen for those patterns. Listen for those repetitions. All right. No more talking. Let me read from God's word for you. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land I am giving you as a home, and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire from the herd of the flock as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices for special vows or free will offerings or festival offerings, then the one who brings his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. With each lamb for the burnt offering or the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hen of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hen of oil and a third of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice for a special vow or a fellowship offering to the Lord, Bring with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hint of oil. Also bring half a hint of wine as a drink offering. It will be an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat is to be, is to be prepared in this manner. Do this for each one, for as many as you prepare. Everyone who is native-born must do these things in this way when he brings an offering made by fire, 
as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For the generations to come, whenever an alien or anyone else living among you presents an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, he must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the alien shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and to the alien living among you. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land to which I am taking you, and you eat the food of the land, present a portion of, of an <coughs> excuse me, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a cake from the first of your ground meal, and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout, <coughs> throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. Now, if you, uninten if you unintentionally failed to keep any of these commands, the Lord gave Moses. Let me read that again. I stumbled a bit. Now, if you unintentionally failed to keep any of these commands, the Lord gave Moses. Any of the Lord's commands to you through him, from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for, for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community and they will be forgiven. For it was not intentional, and they have brought to the Lord for their wrong <clears throat> for their wrong, an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven, because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he's a native-born Israelite or an alien. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must be surely cut off. His guilt remains on him. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord 
that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we open your word, open our hearts, open our eyes and our minds, change us today, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we work through this uh, text, there are going to be some things that we'll see that will be clear. There are some things that perhaps uh, seem a little more obscure because of the nature of reading Old Testament law from an ancient people uh, that seems so strange and foreign to us. My hope today as we work through this is that we will encounter the core reality that God has for us in this text because the Lord wrote all of these things for them and also for us. Things that they did not understand, we now do understand because Christ has come and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies is here and now. So before we get to that core reality, let's turn to the New Testament so that we can get a little bit of a picture that will help us understand this chapter in Numbers. So let's turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be back there toward the end of the message today. 1 Peter is almost to the back of the book. You're not quite to Revelation, but there's a bunch of skinny books after Hebrews, Hebrews, James, and then Peter's letters and John has a couple letters in there and Jude and we have Revelation there. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, just a couple of verses, and then we'll come back to Numbers. The reason that we are reading this is because it gives us insight into what we're talking about here in Numbers 15. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 13, we'll read through 16. Therefore, he writes, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. As we see Peter's words, and we kind of look through that lens back at Numbers 15, there's a consistency. And the, the consistency has to do with relationship. And we see this core reality. Those who belong to the Lord must live set apart to the Lord. Let that sink in as we, as we consider this, because this governs our understanding of every smaller point within this. All of these supporting points uh, throughout this passage are leading us, or they're holding up, if you will, the bridge of understanding. Those who belong to the Lord must live set apart to the Lord. In other words, the, the lives we live reflect the reality of our relationship with Christ. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Moses is saying. 
or the Lord is saying through Moses, is that because you are my people, there is a way you must live. As we go through this, I hope it will become very, very clear to you that they do not become God's people by keeping this law. That wasn't true in the Old Testament, and it certainly isn't true now. So those who want to tell you that to gain God's favor or to make God happy, you, you need to do certain things, you need to jump through certain religious hoops of ceremony, or you need to keep various laws, have missed the entire point of the whole book. This is why it's important that we study the scriptures, not in fits and spurts and little chunks that we take out and put on bumper stickers or mugs. Nothing against that. I've got, got both of those things. But we must understand what God is saying in the entire context. Right? It would be very easy for you to take a clip of this sermon or any sermon I've preached in the last 19 years and, and take out a piece from 22 minutes into the sermon and completely misrepresent the point of the other two hours of the sermon or however long it is, right? Because you need the rest of the context for it to make sense. That's why it's so dangerous when we hear preachers really banging a drum on one particular doctrine or teaching from one obscure verse as our friend Alistair Begg loves to say the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things when we start to take obscure parts and then we find other obscure parts to help us understand what those obscure parts mean things get very twisted very quickly so how do we understand this part we're walking through the book of Numbers, and so far it's been a story, and it's been a pretty exciting story. Most of us probably never expected that in Numbers. We see what's going on like Numbers, oh gosh, Old Testament again. And yet, what we find is there's, there's some power and passion in seeing what happens as God moves among his people. And the connections to, to today are as if it were written today. Because we face the same issues. Do you ever have fears? Do you ever have fears that distract you from your faith? Do you ever, ever have doubts about whether God can or will deliver you? Or how things are going to work out? We have a, a whole society that is overwhelmingly plagued with anxiety. And it appears to be greater than ever before. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know if anybody knows whether that's true or not, except for the Lord. But all of the research, all of the you know, sociological studies that they do indicate a greater level of anxiety today than during the 70s or the 60s or the Depression. All of the, all of the indicators that we have show that even in the worst circumstances of our history, our anxiety level today, at least according to the studies and the reporting, seems to be higher. Why is that? Well, perhaps it's because as a people, we look an awful lot like these ancient Israelites. 
We have God. We have heard of God. We claim to belong to God. And yet, we don't trust his promises. Because we don't really know who he is. That's why our time in the scriptures matters so much. That's why gathering together with other Christ followers who will support your understanding and study of the scriptures, even if it makes you uncomfortable because they tell you stuff you don't want to hear. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important for us to gather, to pray together. We strengthen and encourage one another in this way. Now, when we get to Numbers 15, the story kind of hits the brakes and there's this weird, abrupt stop. You've kind of stepped out of the timeline, out of the chronology, and, and I'm not sure whether this happens immediately following here, but as the writer has put this together, the Lord has inspired him to put it in this place. They got to the crisis moment. They failed in the crisis. God has, has issued his judgment against them. And he sends them back into the, into the wilderness. But then he starts right out of the gate. I'm still in First Peter. Let me flip back here. Then he starts right out of the gate with this message through Moses. Verse 2, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land I am giving you, if you have an ESV, it says when you enter the land I am giving you, there's no question here. There's no doubt. God says, you're, you're going to have this land. And when you have this land, here's what you're to do. Notice this. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me stop for just a second. As we view this, and the point that I'm about to make with you, as we think of these things, we need to remember the core reality for the whole book of Numbers. And this is the recurring theme in the wilderness that we'll see. It will become clearer and clearer with each chapter as we move toward the end. It's this. Our unfaithful choices have consequences. But the Lord remains faithful to his promises. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. And that's exactly where the Lord starts them out here in chapter 15. You have been unfaithful, and there is a consequence for that. This generation will not receive the inheritance. You'll wander in the wilderness. But I'm not done. My plans don't change, and that's our first point. Even through the consequences of their sin, the Lord's good plan for his people does not change. Even through the consequences of their sin, the Lord's good plan for his people does not change. This is why in uh, Jeremiah 29, as the Lord is sending his people after many centuries, generations and centuries of failing, of rebellion, and he exiles his people finally with the southern kingdom of Israel being uh, exiled, known as Judah. As this is about to happen, and the Lord is telling them about it, in Jeremiah 29, he says, you're going to go into Babylon and settle in. Don't listen to the prophets who tell you it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. My hand is against you. 
and you will suffer, but embrace it. Settle in, pray for Babylon. What? Pray for, yeah, because you're going to be there. And as they prosper, you prosper because you're in the midst of it. But after 70 years is completed, because I've got a good plan for you, I'll bring you back. And that's where we find Jeremiah 29, 11, where he says, I know the plans I have for you. Good plans, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Now, he's telling them this as he's about to send them into such misery that the people of God actually resort to cannibalism with those who are left behind. This is a really bad scenario. But my plans for you are good, not for your harm. I know my plans. When I'm done and I bring you back, then, because of all this stuff, you will seek me and find me. Because at that time, after you've gone through this, then you're going to seek me with all your heart. You see, even though we do face consequences for our unfaithful choices, God's covenant promises don't change. They don't fail. He is always faithful, even when his people are unfaithful. Say amen if you know you've ever blown it as a Christian. Okay? That, that's my biggest amen, right? I fail constantly. I, I can't even keep track of my failings. Isn't it good to know that the destiny that God has laid out for you, the good plan that he has for you, hasn't changed because you stumbled. You didn't cause it to happen. You didn't bring it about, so you can't blow it so big that God says, oh, shoot. Well, chuck that plan. Let's start over again, right? Now, if you've ever, you know, tried to, you know, <laughs> bake a cake and had everything go wrong, you know, and, and, and you're supposed to add in, I don't know, I don't bake. That's why I, I have my lovely wife take care of all this stuff for me. But you're supposed to add in uh, cinnamon to whatever you're, you're baking. And instead of cinnamon, you add in chili powder, right? Might change things a little bit. And it could be drastic enough that you say, uh, yuck, and you throw that in the trash. God never looks at you and says, yuck, I'm throwing you in the trash. That should comfort our hearts. Because we didn't do it. Notice what he tells them. When you get to this land that I'm giving you, don't, don't let that slide by your mind. He's the one giving them the land. I will bring you into this place. I will give it to you as a home, as an inheritance. You didn't earn it. You didn't build it. You're not even going to conquer it. I'm going to conquer it. And I'm going to let you participate. We're going to walk through here. But when you go without me, you fail. When you go with me, you cannot fail. My plans are not based on you. My plans are based on me, on my character. Even though we fail, God never does. Even through the consequences of their sin, the Lord's good plan for his people does not change. At this particular juncture, they're headed in the opposite direction, but the Lord doesn't hedge on the fact that he will give his people the land. Notice our next point. Our approach to worship must be according to God's word, not our own whims or desires. Our approach to worship must be according to God's word, not our own whims or desires. Now, there are 
a lot of areas that we could go into that, that I think would be sidetracking, would be distractions to us. We could discuss, uh, depending on your background, the normative, the, the normative or regulative principle for worship and how to structure a church service and all that. None of that really is the point here. But what we see in verses 3 through 16 is God telling the people, when you come to make these offerings, these sacrifices, and, he, and he, he details them out, but he says, when you come to make these offerings, here's how to do it. He's gone into great length in that direction in the book of Leviticus. He's already given them instructions in Exodus about how to make sacrifices. He gives a clearer instruction in Leviticus about how to make sacrifices. He gives a little uh, touch here to, to draw their minds in. And then in Deuteronomy, they're going to see it again. And what God is telling them here is, regardless of the type of sacrifice, if it's a, uh, a, you know, a bull or a goat or a lamb or a ram, whatever it is, Here's how you do it. You're going to offer this grain offering with it. You're going to offer this drink offering with it. And, and it, when we study other passages, we can look at the details of that. But the point here is not the details. The point here is when you do this, when you come into this land and you want to worship me. Now notice it, it hinges on that idea that they want to worship him. These are free will offerings, voluntary offerings. And each of the different types, each of the different sources, each of the different means is a particular type of a voluntary offering. And yet, even in the voluntary offering, there's a mandate. We don't get to approach God on our terms. We get to approach God only on his terms. Therefore, when God says, hey, when you voluntarily want to sacrifice this bull as a pleasing aroma to me. That concept of a pleasing aroma to the Lord means a sacrifice that the Lord is satisfied with. A sacrifice that makes God happy. And we see over and over that picture, that phrase repeated throughout the, the uh, Old Testament books, but specifically in the Torah, but throughout the Old Testament, of an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Later in the prophets... When the condemnation of God's people comes, and it says, stop with your sacrifices. It smells like the stench of death to me. Your worship stinks. It's the same offering. They're doing all the things. But that, it's not that the Lord loves the smell of barbecue. Everybody loves the smell of barbecue. That's not the point. It's that the sacrifice is acceptable to God. So when he tells them, stop with your sacrifices, it's the same physical act, it's the same actual smell, but instead of smelling like a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it stinks of death. That's what happens when we go through religious ritual, when we do all the things, but our heart is far from him. In Ephesians 5.2, we're told that Christ is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Jesus, on our behalf, is an aroma pleasing to the Lord. He is the sacrifice that satisfies the Lord. 
Okay. Our approach to worship must be according to God's word, not our own whims or desires. So we have this extended passage here from, from 3 to 16 talking about how to go through all this. And in a nutshell, the point is exactly that. You don't get to just do whatever you want. And we have this approach in our day that the church somehow should be sensitive to our needs. That our worship should be something that appeals to us. You know, so we change churches because we, we don't like the music or, you know, the preacher looks funny or, or is a little too dry, a little too boring. You know, these are me-centered things. Our worship needs to be God-centered. And not God-centered according to what we think God-centered looks like so that we have the right experience that makes us happy. It needs to be according to what God says is real and true and acceptable in his sight. God's people must worship God on God's terms. Our approach to worship must be according to God's word, not our own whims or desires. It's a long section with many details, but the point is short and, to the, and focused. Next, we see in verses 17 to 21 that a thankful heart expresses its gratitude tangibly. A thankful heart expresses its gratitude tangibly. Take a look at uh, verse 17, if you would, and following. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, you see the... the uh, third of the divisions here. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land to which I am taking you and you eat the food of the land, your translation may say, may say eat the bread of the land, literally, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a cake or a loaf from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering or comparable to like an offering from the threshing floor. I don't know what that means exactly, but the point of it is still the same. It's a first fruits kind of concept. That because of our gratitude to the Lord, when we receive his blessings, our first thought needs to be, I am thankful. I am grateful. This is why I believe the tithe still matters. Now, there are many uh, in circles that I would run with who say well, the tithe's been done away with and, and yes to an extent that's true and yet I think resoundingly no the purpose of the tithe outside of the, the, the practice in Israel that was not a 10% strict tithe it was more like 23 because you had a 10% tithe on this and then a, another tithe here and then another tithe all for the use within the the uh, tabernacle or the temple worship and for the keeping of the poor okay so that was a legal requirement within Israel but the principle of the tithe is much older than that and we see Abraham give uh, 10% of, of his wealth to this unknown king, Melchizedek, who shows up, this prophet, priest, king, uh, foreshadowing of Christ. I don't, uh, I don't know that I agree that, that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but it's definitely a type, and we know that because in Hebrews, we see the parallel drawn between Christ and Melchizedek. 
And when Abraham gave that tithe, that 10% to Melchizedek, there was no law given that required a tithe. So there's a principle here that goes back even beyond that 10% tithe to the first fruits principle that is in all of the giving. To express gratitude to God for his blessings, we recognize that none of it actually belongs to me. I own nothing. I am a steward managing God's resources. He owns it all. Everything I have I received from him. All the things that I, in my mind, think I've worked so hard to earn. Why is it that somebody else who's worked just as hard as me hasn't earned it? Why is it that somebody who's busting their hump way more than I am, maybe more gifted, more talented, and yet they can't seem to get over? Because these things come from the Lord's hand as he sees fit. Some people receive much, some people receive little, all of it for God's purpose according to his sovereign will. That doesn't mean don't work. It means be grateful for all that you have. So in that, in that vein, I think the concept of the tithe, not as law, but as an act of grateful worship, still makes sense. It's the first fruits principle. When I get my paycheck, I remind myself through the act of giving I'm only given part of this, but all of it belongs to God. And apart from him, I've got nothing. You say, well, I can't really afford to do that. I don't know that you can afford not to. Can you afford to not be grateful to the Lord? Can you afford to offend God by not being generous toward others with the things that he's given to you? Uh, I'm not trying to preach a, a sermon on giving today. But it is important for us to recognize this principle. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your heart is, your treasure will be. When God tells them, when you come into the land and you receive the blessing of the land, you've already seen that it's a good land. You'll, you'll remember the spies coming back and it takes two of them to carry a, bundle, a bunch of grapes because that's how, how big this thing is, right? It's an abundant land. And when you get into this land, and you're harvesting from fields and vineyards that you didn't plant. And you're living in houses and fortified cities that you didn't build. And you're receiving all these good things. Express your gratitude to the Lord by taking from the first of your harvest, the first of your ground meal, and you offer some of that. Notice it doesn't even say a percentage here. That's not the point. The percentage has never been the point. Offer some of the very first of it as the tangible expression of your thankful heart. A thankful heart expresses its gratitude tangibly. And then we see an interesting uh, transition here because in this third section, the gratitude and the unintentional sin and the high-handed sin all come together in this same section. Notice this point. The Lord is compassionate and merciful toward our failures. The Lord is compassionate and merciful toward our failures. Now, I don't think we have to spend a lot of time determining that we fail. We all know that. We had a loud amen. 
right? But see what he says there in verses 22 to 29. I said the third section. This is really the second section. Um, If you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally without the community being aware of it, in other words, it's not like it's secret, it's that you don't get it. You're not, you're not realizing that you're sinning. You're doing this thing as you're just going on with your life and you're, you're uh, unintentionally or, or unaware sinning. Who can discern his hidden faults? Then the whole community is to offer a young bull for, an offering, for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering, and a male goat for a sin offering. The goat is used here for the sin offering. And the priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they will be forgiven. All right, so this this particular section is talking about two things. One, it's talking about corporate sin. It's going to, in just a moment, talk about the unintentional individual sin. How does the individual deal with this? The individual is to bring the young female goat to be a sin offering, to deal with their individual sin. But this is when the community fails to do what the community is supposed to do. And then at some point along the way, they're convicted. They realize that, oh man, we, we weren't really paying attention. We got off track. We got sideways. We got to get right. And we repent And in that repenting, they bring this offering to the Lord according to what he describes or prescribes here. And as they bring this, God deals with it. They can't just blow it off because it's, well, I didn't really mean to. They have to deal with the sin. And the Lord forgives them because the Lord wants to. He delights in showing mercy. But sin cannot be ignored. Now, we have this tendency in our day, and I don't think it's any different than any other generation throughout human history. We have this tendency to think that, you know, because, as they say, uh, to err is human, right? And to forgive is divine, that it's okay for us to just, you know, you know God knows we're doing our best. We're, we're trying, right? So no big deal. That's blasphemy. Sin must be dealt with. And it doesn't matter if it's an accidental sin or not. You may remember earlier when we were talking about uh, the Nazarite vows and we were talking about the uncleanness in the camp. It didn't matter how it happened when sin or deadness or disease was present. It had to be removed. And if it violated your vow, whether you had anything to do with it or not, Right? You're not to be around a dead body. Somebody drops dead next to you. Whoops, that's a violation of my vow. Your vow has to start over. Because God cannot abide unholy, unrighteous sin. Period. It's an absolute. There is no wiggle room. No sin can exist, can abide in God's presence. And all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to sin. But God delights in offering forgiveness. You can't just stumble through it and say, oh, God God knows, it's good. No. 
But when you come to him, notice the shall. They will be. It is certain when you come and you deal with God on God's terms and you turn from your wicked ways to him, whether intentional, you know, that's, this is not about, man, I, I didn't know. It's about the state of the heart. I stumbled into sin because I was not paying attention or because I got sucked into an old habit or because I got deceived and distracted and discouraged by the evil one. And when we do this, the Lord is compassionate and merciful toward our failures. It pleases God to forgive sins. Yes, he hates sin, but he delights in mercy. Good parents understand this. Sin, failure must be addressed, but we long to see things set right and to bless the children we love. God gives us family so that we can understand that better. But rebellion's a different thing, isn't it? How, how do you feel when somebody, you know, bumps into your car with a grocery cart at the, at the grocery store? You're in the parking lot and the cart gets out of their hand and it's a windy day. Bang. Oh, probably not happy, right? Got to ding inside your car. You know, we're going to have to deal with this. One way or another, got to fix it. But isn't it completely different when somebody looks you in the eye, gives you that, that uh, you know, one finger salute, and then smashes that car, cart right into the side of your car? You think you might feel a little bit differently about that? Keep that in mind as we consider this next point. The Lord has no tolerance for arrogance and rebellion. The Lord has no tolerance for arrogance and rebellion. Look at verse 30. But anyone who sins, the NIV here reads defiantly. The ESV says, with a high hand. This high-handed idea of arrogant rebellion. I know what God requires, but I'm doing my own thing. That's the picture. Picture that, that person smashing your car on purpose in the parking lot. That's the idea here. Anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. My mother is always offended when I use the picture or the expression of giving God the finger and rightly so because it's intended to be offensive I want you to feel offended you should be because that's what we do that's the same thing that we're doing in the most offensive way that you can imagine when we look at what God expects of us and we say I'm going to do my thing anyway because hey you know God loves to forgive right He's compassionate and merciful. And Jesus died to save me. So, hey, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Your sin has to be dealt with. And if that's your attitude toward it, then you don't know him at all. And it doesn't matter here in Israel whether you're native born or you're foreign and, and, and living with the Israelites. In the same way as today, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your level of knowledge is. When your heart says, 
I, I see this in the word, but I'm going to do what I want. Because my God that I believe in would never expect anything like that. My God that I believe in, well, you know, he, he certainly would not question my attractions. My God that I believe in loves everyone so much that he wouldn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves. My God that I believe in. Man, there's one God. The God that you believe in that lets you do what you want to do. That's an idol. Idols must be destroyed. We have to come to him on his terms. He's compassionate and merciful toward our failures, but he has no tolerance for arrogance and rebellion. And just to make sure they get it, there's included here a a narrative that I'm not convinced is actually happening in this this moment. I I don't think this is a chronological part, but it's put here specifically as an illustration of what the writer is saying, what the Lord is saying through Moses. Okay, so verse, uh, verses 30, 31. Anyone who sins defiantly, high-handedly, arrogantly, rebelliously, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. Uh, suffice it to say, that is, uh, appears to be a euphemism for put to death. Now, there's debate among scholars about what that literally technically means. But what it for sure means is they are separated from the covenant promises of God. And inevitably, as you see it, each time we see it, with very few exceptions, there is execution involved, right? Cut off from his people is a permanent, severe judgment of God reserved for high-handed sin. Verse 31, because he has despised the Lord's word. This is what happens when we sin high-handedly, defiantly, arrogantly, rebelliously. We despise the Lord's word and intentionally break his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to just go ahead and do this and then come back later and ask forgiveness. You can't game God. He's not a doddering old grandfather in the sky who just overlooks sin and, you know, you can come and, and, you know, give your best story and, oh, I'm really sorry, I was trying my best. God is no fool and he will not be mocked. You cannot game God. So immediately following this, verse 32, while the Israelites were in the desert, so at some point during this wilderness experience, Presumably early on, not necessarily chronological here. A man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Now, to my mind and to your mind probably, it doesn't seem like all that big of a deal. He's gathering some wood on the Sabbath day. Except for they were expressly forbidden to do so. We won't go back into all the Sabbath laws, but, but understand this. God had specifically said, you are not to do this on the Sabbath day, and anyone who does must be cut off from his people. So presumably for the same reason that I would not know what to do here, 
We read in verse 33, those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. This is a big deal. God said, you know, this can't happen. And yet, is it really that big of a deal? I, I don't really know. Moses, Aaron, what do you think? 35, then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. He was driving the point home tangibly with this story so that we understand, so that they understand, there's no small sin when you are deliberately going against God's word. You and I don't get to decide what is sin and what isn't. God's word tells us. And when we do it, with, with a full knowledge that what we are doing is sin against God and we choose to do it anyway. Well, I know I shouldn't. Yeah, but God's a good guy. He'll understand. We blaspheme God. We despise his word. And we set ourselves up as his enemies. This Sabbath breaker is simply an example of that. Do not be fooled into thinking that God is soft. The Lord is compassionate and merciful toward our failures, and yet the Lord has no tolerance for arrogance and rebellion. Last point we need to see here. Verses 37 to 41, we see this. The Lord's people need constant reminders that we belong to him and not to ourselves. The Lord's people need constant reminders that we belong to him and not to ourselves. Those of you who participated in our, in our uh, Jerusalem Marketplace Vacation Bible School this past summer, uh, some of you young folks will remember it, some of you older folks who volunteered will remember it. Um, as I portrayed the rabbi down in the, in the synagogue school, um, was wearing a prayer shawl which had tassels on the corners just like what's described here with the blue cord in it. And it's very easy in religious circles to take the reminders that God has commanded and turn them into something that actually dishonors him. We don't ever want to do that. In fact, that's why we spent last week uh, considering the sacred reminder that the Lord gave us in the remembrance celebration, the communion, uh, the Eucharist. It reminds us of the living hope we share in Christ. The ceremony itself doesn't give life any more than these tassels have magic powers. You don't look at the tassels and it's like shazam and you power up. None of that kind of stuff. It's a reminder to draw their attention. In the same way today when we participate in the remembrance celebration, it does not give life these things are physical reminders. They draw the attention of God's people back to who they are and to whose they are. It's important for us to recognize, even as it was for ancient Israel, not only who we are, but to whom we belong. Whose we are. You see, when we get caught up in what this world constantly is telling us, 
Man, you can't love anybody till you love yourself. Self-esteem. You got you got you got to understand your value, your worth. Now, I'm not talking about contract negotiations. Yes, understand your value and your worth when you're trying to get a paycheck. We're talking about reality. Actual life. Your paycheck is small potatoes compared to eternity. Who you are is a wretched worthless worm. There's your inspiration for today. Thanks, preacher. I feel great now. I have to understand this. Until I come to that place, I cannot approach God. I cannot come to the holy God thinking I have something to offer him. I have to know I am nothing, and he gives me everything I have. The only reason that I am not in hell today is his grace. And the sooner I realize that, the sooner I can get myself aligned with his reality. The Lord's people need constant reminders that we belong to him and not ourselves. <clears throat> the tassels that they have there and the, the ordinances that, that Christ gave us in the church are reminders that we belong to God and not to ourselves. Read uh, what the Lord says here. Uh, in verse 39, you will have these, and following, you will have these tassels to look at. Great, tassels, super, looking at them, okay. And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. I think the picture is a little clearer in the ESV if you have it that you might not <laughs> that you might not follow your own hearts and minds your own hearts and eyes as you're inclined to go whoring after them that again it's intended to be offensive god is trying to offend the sensibilities of his people by saying look when you go after your things when you think you get to do life your way you're prostituting yourselves you're committing adultery against me you're selling out you're selling out your intimate identity as my child as my bride don't do that the tassels didn't have a list of the commands. You look at them and you remember, wait a minute. I have tassels on my garment that are a strange fashion choice that make me different. The people of Israel looked physically different than the nations around them. Why was that important? Because it was to be a reminder that they are in actuality, in their identity, different. They're sinners like everybody else, but because of the covenant promises of God, they're his people. Those tassels reminded them. So when you look at the tassel, then it's like, I gotta remember. I wear a wedding ring to remind me that I'm married. I don't forget, in case you were wondering. I forget a lot of things. I don't forget I'm married. But it's a tangible reminder of a covenant I made 34 years ago. And one day, we will be separated by death. And that's the only thing that will take that covenant away. It's a tangible reminder. But if I lose that wedding ring, guess what? The covenant doesn't change. The tassels weren't the point. Communion, baptism, all these things, that's not the point. 
They're reminders. There's a constant emphasis throughout the book of Numbers, throughout the narrative of the Old Testament and the entire scope of Scripture. And that emphasis is relationship to God. The promises of God are an aspect of his covenant relationship to his people. Excuse me. The being always precedes the doing. All right, don't, don't miss that. The being always precedes the doing. If I were taking notes, I might jot that down. One does not gain access to God by obedience. Rather, one who belongs to God demonstrates that relationship through obedience. Notice God called them and then gave them the law. He said, you are mine. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. He didn't say, you've done a really good job of setting yourself apart and doing all the right things. Therefore, you can be my child. No. This is a monergistic effort. The Lord reached in to a sinful human race and said, I'm going to call Abram out. And from him, I am going to bring all of these people and eventually I'm going to send my son through that, through that people. I'm going to make myself known to the rest of the world through that people. Abraham didn't do anything to earn it. Israel didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, just the opposite. In the same way, I didn't do anything to earn a relationship with Christ. Neither did you, and we can't. Just the opposite. He chose to give us life because he is compassionate and merciful in our failures. But there is a reality that when we belong to him, we must live like it. That's the point being made here. We see it in Ephesians 4 when Paul says, now because of everything I said in the first three chapters about who you are in Christ, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. You already received the calling. Now walk in step with who you are. Romans 12, having built up the the entire situation of our, our need because of sin and the salvation that God offers us in Romans 12, Paul writes, hey, listen, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to say, this is what it looks like to do that. This is how you love one another sincerely. This is how you behave as a child of God. You don't behave to become a child of God. You behave because you are a child of God. And there are countless other references that we won't look at. This is really just as true today under the new covenant as it was for God's people of old. To wrap this up, let's close by turning to 1 Peter 1. Back where we started in the beginning. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, slightly more than what we read the first time. But as you follow along with this, notice the consistency in the way Peter writes with what we've seen in Numbers. You're going to see elements of relationship, that there's no difference between one group and another group. The difference between what Peter writes and what we read in Numbers is that the sacrifices and reminders of the old pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice and fulfillment of the new that we have in Christ. 
So I'm going to pick up with verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Right? Look at the tassels and remember to do the commands. You belong to me. Live like it. Don't do what you used to do. 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Notice that impartial judgment. It's one rule for native born or foreigner. 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from, from your forefathers. You could add to that bulls and goats and, and lambs. It wasn't with these perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. We don't come by our whims and desires. We come according to his word. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen and amen. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Remember as we, as we sing our closing song and as we go into our week, remember that those who belong to the Lord must live set apart to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of having this word, having the law and the prophets made more clear and certain in the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are merciful and compassionate toward us in our failure. But you are not an unjust judge. And yet you loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die in our place to be an atoning sacrifice, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And Father, you made yourself both just and the justifier so that the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be your righteousness. Father, you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You've made us your children and given us full standing exactly the same as Jesus himself as if we were your begotten children when we've been united to him by faith.
Now, Father, help us to do what we cannot do on our own, to walk in a way that honors you, worthy of the calling that you've received, consecrated and set apart for you to live as holy because you are holy. Lord, take our lives. Let them be consecrated to you. We surrender everything. In the name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen.